Hello, I'm Dennis Hall, a Charter Financial Planner, the founder of Yellow Tail Financial Planning, and I've been talking to people about money for almost 40 years. And I'm Sarah Steele. I work with Dennis, but I'm not a financial planner. I'm here to ask questions relevant to you, our listeners, and to keep things on the right side of technical. Basically, does it pass the Sarah test? Hello and welcome to The Century Plan. Today we're going to be looking at risk and primarily the risk in relation to financial planning rather than the risk of being struck by lightning or run over whilst crossing the road. Okay Dennis, in our previous episode we talked about longevity and life expectancy. Today we're going to cover risk. How is risk relevant to The Century Plan? Well I'm going to begin with a little bit of history to look at how the concept of risk and risk management has evolved. Okay. Because risk is a relatively modern concept rooted in the Hindi Arabic numbering system, which is essentially the decimal system. And that reached us here in the West around 800 years ago. So it's not really that long ago. But even then, a serious study of risk didn't really begin until the Renaissance and was initially used to solve a gambling puzzle. And it was solved using mathematics and that led to the theory of probability, which is the mathematical heart of the thing we call risk. Okay, so when I'm chatting with someone um, and I say the chances of something happening is, I don't know, 8 out of 10, I'm using probability theory. Probably. Do you see what I did there? Uh. Um, so probability theory allowed people for the first time to make decisions and attempt to forecast the future using numbers rather than relying on patterns from the past or gut instinct, both of which are riddled with biases. But the big breakthroughs happened in the mid-17th century, and what was initially a tool developed by gamblers evolved into a powerful way of handling information and developing quantitative techniques of risk management. It wasn't simply about measuring risk, but learning how to manage risk. Back in the 17th century, what sort of risks required that level of maths? Well, at that time, the Amsterdam Stock Exchange was already doing a brisk trade, including some very sophisticated futures trading in tulip bulbs. And those futures trades are very similar to the types of financial instruments traded today. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what other risks were being managed? Well, by the early 18th century, mathematicians were using probabilities to devise tables of life expectancy, and that led to the sale of life annuities. It also aided the development of other types of insurance, and if you think about it, insurance essentially is pricing the risk of something happening. So when do you think the idea of property insurance as we know it today first came about? Oh, I don't know. Could it be after the Great Fire of London in 1666? It could. Good, good guess. Was it a guess? No. <laughs> oh, right. good, good knowledge. <laughs> so, the Great Fire of London, um, about 13,000 buildings were destroyed by fire. And if you were starting out in the fire insurance business, you'd want to try and forecast the probability of a claim. So, this era saw the emergence of the bell curve, which is a graph of the normal distribution of something happening, as well as something called standard deviation. Hang on a minute, Dennis. That's not passing the Sarah test. You're losing me a bit there. Can you explain that a bit more? I can, and I'm going to use the tossing of coins to illustrate it. So, say you tossed a coin ten times in a row. There are a range of possible outcomes. But because each toss is basically a 50-50 split between heads and tails, you might expect that after tossing a coin ten times to have seen five heads and five tails. But you also know that there are a range of other outcomes. 
from it being all heads to being all tails and every combination between. So if we repeated that exercise a thousand times, what do you think might happen? Uh... I suppose that most of the time we'd see results cluster around five times heads and five times tails, and it would be rare for a run of ten times heads. Yeah, that's right. But if you then plotted all the possible outcomes on a piece of graph paper, you would get this bell-shaped curve that I was talking about, which was showing the frequency of each outcome. Okay. And standard deviation? Well, standard deviation is essentially looking at all of that, um, that, that data, that distribution of possible outcomes, and being able to say with some degree of certainty what outcomes we might expect 7 out of 10 times tossing those coins. Now, to any mathematician listening, I appreciate that's a very simplistic explanation. So, I'm jotting this down, and, and so far we've heard about the theory of probability the bell curve and the idea of standard deviation. Is there anything else? Well, there is. I mean, these mathematical tools form the basis of the law of average, and they're essential to the modern techniques of quantifying risk. But there are two other more recent developments that are important, and they happen to underpin my philosophy when it comes to investment and investment risk. Okay, my pen is poised. Tell me more. Okay. First, 1875. Charles Darwin's first cousin, Francis Galton. He discovered something called regression to the mean. Now, you've heard me use that term in the office, but as a non-financial planner, what do you think it means in a layperson's terms? Um, gosh, right. I think it means everything will even out in the end. Uh, so you might have a period of above average performance followed by poor performance. Um, but things will return to normal over a longer period of time. Yeah, I think you've nailed that. Great. Thank you, Sarah. All right, so that's uh, Francis Galton out of the way. I want to fast forward from 1875 to 1952 and a chap called Harry Markowitz, talented mathematician who sub subsequently became a Nobel laureate. Now, back then, he was doing postgrad study at the University of Chicago, and he showed us mathematically why putting all your eggs in one basket is an unacceptably risky strategy. And although it's common as a common idiom, um, Harry was the first person to demonstrate using numbers why diversification is the nearest an investor can ever come to getting a free lunch. Now, his work sparked an intellectual movement that has revolutionised investment, corporate finance and business decision making. And he's, that, that has an effect right through to today. So in summary, the world has gone from using maths to help quantify gambling odds to probability theory, the law of averages, regression to the mean, and the concept of diversification to reduce risk. Well, I've enjoyed the history lesson, Dennis. What does that mean today, and how relevant is this for the ordinary person on the street trying to invest for their future? Okay, yep. All right, it might be interesting, but how do we make it relevant? Well, I'm afraid I'm still going to have to skirt around the issue a little bit more because this word risk is used in many contexts, and I don't just mean the risk of being hit by lightning or involved in a car accident. When it comes to money, there are many types of risk that we can be exposed to. And can you give me some examples? I can. So um, interest rates and inflation have been in the news recently, so why don't we look at those? If you're a borrower and you fix your mortgage rate at today's interest rate and then the base rate goes down, there's a risk that you'll be paying too much to borrow. Conversely, if you're a saver and you opt for a fixed term interest rate and then the base rates rise, you could have got more interest on your money. 
Yeah, but people lock into their mortgage and savings interest rates to give them certainty that interest rates could move in the opposite direction for both borrowers and savers. So you could argue they've removed the risk. True. And it's a trade-off between the individual borrower and saver and the institution, with each side offering or accepting an interest rate that balances risk and reward for them. Now, I also mentioned inflation, and there is inflation risk. So if you're saving and investing money long-term, inflation is eating away at the real value of that money unless the return that you're getting, after tax and after costs, is greater than inflation. And historically, cash has failed to beat inflation over the medium to long term. So savings accounts are a poor choice for money that isn't needed in the short term. Yeah, okay. You mentioned diversification or not putting your eggs in one basket. Can you explain that in terms of risk? I can probably do better than that, Sarah, by giving you a real world example. So I'm going to go back to 2008 and the credit crunch. Um, At that time, I had an office in Lombard Street across the road from the Bank of England. And locally, there were a lot of people working for the big banks. Just before the crunch came, I remember I was advising a bank employee who was about to take early retirement. And he had amassed a significant holding in bank shares through various savers you earn and share option schemes. It was a six-figure sum, and the dividends were enough to bridge the gap between his reduced pension and the state pension, which would kick in several years later. Now... I had pleaded with him to reduce this highly concentrated exposure to bank shares, and he said no. In his long career with the bank, the returns had been good. The dividends were high, and in his eyes, the bank couldn't fail. All the evidence was pointing to me being wrong. (laughs) But then the bank did fail, and the share price collapsed, the dividends stopped, and although he still had a reduced bank pension, he still had to go and find work in a difficult job market to support his lifestyle. And of course the stock market collapsed hit all shares, but the banks were hit hardest and they took the longest time to recover. Uh, So were you simply asking him to sell bank shares and invest across a wider range of shares, or were you talking about diversification into other areas? Well, he was very exposed to his former employer through the pension scheme and through the shares. Virtually all his money was held in bank shares alongside a small emergency fund. Now, ordinarily, for him, that wouldn't have been a problem. But I'd suggested that if the stock market were to collapse and not recover for a few years, that emergency fund was too little to fall back on. So, yes, I wanted him to reduce exposure not only to bank shares, but also to beef up his cash reserves too. And I've seen this thinking across all kinds of people employed by large multinational employers. They have decent pension schemes, which is a good thing, and they have good share option schemes. Uh, You know, people such as the energy sector have been similarly affected. But it's not just those people. There are people who have piled into buy-to-let and over-borrowed and then find themselves as forced sellers in a bad market. And then there are those others that have ploughed everything into cryptocurrency. When short-term gains look easy, the concept of risk often seems to go out of the window. Okay, so we're beginning to consider risk and risk management on a more practical level now through diversification. So how else can you make this topic of risk relevant to our listeners? Well, I suppose we should ask ourselves the fundamental question of what is risk? Because when we understand that, we can work out how best to measure it and quantify it. And in the context of savings and investments that we're putting away for the future, our retirement years perhaps, the risk isn't so much that the money goes up and down in value over time, but whether there is a permanent loss of capital at the time you want to use it. 
Right, is this why you say if you're going to take big risks, do it when you're young and still have time to recover? Um, because as you get older, the ability to recover from losses becomes increasingly difficult. Exactly. Though we're never going to be able to avoid risk, what we're trying to achieve is having the right amount of money available at the right time. So placing all your money in cash because it is perceived as safe is the risky option if you have a long-term horizon, especially now that inflation has started to rear its head again. The evidence suggests that over the long term, an investment portfolio with a higher proportion of shares rather than more defensive assets like cash and government bonds actually has a higher probability of success. The problem is that people's perception is that shares are risky. And part of the problem is that the language used when talking about shares in the stock market sounds like gambling terminology. Yes, but shares are volatile and they do move up and down in price. Agreed. But the long-term trend of the stock market is up despite the short-term swings in share prices. People spend too much time focusing on these short-term swings and not enough time on the long-term trend. And this is the reversion to the mean that we spoke about a little earlier. But aren't the risk profiling questionnaires that people complete based on their relative comfort with volatility? Yes. Most risk profiling questionnaires ask questions about how someone might feel if the value of investments went down. And until recently, the regulations also meant that investment managers had to notify clients when the value of their investments fell by 10%. But that's the wrong thing to focus on. Focusing on volatility and someone's comfort zone does them a disservice. Okay. So I dislike these questions. Well, you can tell. <laughs> I dislike these questionnaires because they focus on volatility as a proxy for risk whereas it's more useful to look at someone's capacity to handle the volatility and their capacity to absorb market swings. And we can measure this capacity for risk with cash flow planning, using life expectancy as a timeline, and then determine how hard their money needs to work and what level of short-term volatility they can accept. This is a much better way to, for long-time financial decisions to be made Whereas volatility is something we need to live with um, and, and we need to live with it if we want to secure better long-term outcomes. Investing isn't the same as gambling and so we can use risk models to help us predict the future to ensure that financial plans support long-term goals. And if we don't do that, if all we're doing is swapping some mild discomfort today, we're creating a long-term problem tomorrow. Okay, Dennis. Um, I think we've probably come to the end of today's podcast. So can you summarise it in under a minute for us? Oh, I'll try. OK, let's remember, risk is all around us. We're essentially trading different kinds of risk as we navigate our way through life. And when it comes to quantifying and managing investment risk, there is some sophisticated mathematics and mathematical models to help us. But we do need to use the right assumptions in the first place not volatility. Remember, it's about making sure that we invest our money in the right place so that we can access the amounts that we need when we need it. Volatility isn't the enemy, it's something we need to embrace if we want our money to grow in real terms. Perfect, thank you. <laughs> okay, so join us next time on the Century Plan podcast when we'll be looking at some of the popular myths and rules of thumb that might be a hindrance to making better long-term decisions. Thank you.